Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner, The Pillar's co-founder and editor, Ed Condon. And Ed, this is our 15th episode of The Pillar Podcast. Uh, yes. Yes. I mean, this is, uh, this is our 14th episode. This is the 15th. I wasn't... What does that mean? Well, you had the bonus track. Oh, that's right, because we released as an episode of the Pillar Podcast my conversation with Archbishop Chaput last week. That's correct. I wasn't invited to that one, but whatever. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. This is is our 14th episode. Yes. Okay. Well, nevertheless, 15th episode for me, 15th episode for our listeners. So I'm... uh, You know, Ed, what I think we should do at this momentous occasion is probably take the entirety of this episode to just look back and reflect on our favorite moments from podcast our podcast history together really like remember that time that we talked about um that Gwen Stefani <laughs> I, I I do that was or rem- fun. remember that other time that we talked about um um other things of interest. Remember that time we <laughs> played that two million dollar game? That was four million dollar game or whatever. That was fun. It it was. I I enjoy all of our podcasts. I this is, I treasure these moments, JD. I absolutely do. Those are all the moments that I remember. But I just like I just like I feel like you know, I just look back over these many months and I, I'm just feeling nostalgic. I, I feel like there's I, I'm being asked to walk up to a bear trap here and i don't know what it is you don't get the game i i don't either no. I, I i don't either i was just just feeling nostalgic just looking back i mean just like this is you know 15th anniversary 15th excuse me 15th episode you know it's a big big deal i don't know what's going on did you get me anything no oh. no i didn't and i didn't i didn't get you anything either let me just put this away here and let's move on ed this is becoming increasingly like my marriage and it makes me (laughs) no it's it's fine it was nothing it was just uh, it was nothing ed how was honey i didn't know that it meant i didn't know we were getting gifts no it's fine and we weren't we weren't i mean we weren't it was silly well no i mean (laughs) man i desperately want to get a gift out of this now basically i am just you know talking smack here and i crumpled up a bag to make it sound like i was putting a gift away but no i'm just i'm just talking smack here buddy okay Um, i didn't even know i I didn't even know that it was the 15th episode of the show your 14th episode of the show until you told me right before the show so really i'm just i'm just running a game on you now i am having all kinds of memories of previous episodes (laughs) but you know it's not a game ed tell me easter easter's not a game that's not the paschal mystery there's nothing funny about rising from the dead jd no, there's not, actually. Not at all. Um, but I do want to talk about Easter, and I want to talk about your Easter, especially your Easter Monday, because on Easter... Oh, we're really getting started here. Hey, Davey. Uh-huh. Davey, Dad Dad is recording his podcast. Do you want to say hi? Hi. <laughs> do you want to say what you did on Easter? No, he's shaking his head. No, he does not want to. Well, what can I do for you, my young son? He is looking up. There's a... There's a uh, a tube of M&Ms on my bookshelf, and he's looking up longingly at that tube of M&Ms. I, I feel okay, like you, you asked have... for this interruption if that's where you're keeping the chocolate. 
Well, I, I didn't so much ask for the interruption as it just happened, and I am going to supply. But now it's become like the whole, the gang's all here. My wife Kate is here now. Everyone, hey Kate. Okay. I wish we. I you have often floated the idea of recording this podcast, and I think it's a silly one. But for this particular session, I wish we had because it's very much that that poor um, geopolitical analyst on the BBC who's children and wife. Oh, right. okay. you know, there, there, there are echoes of that here. It's very endearing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so anyway, um, it's... <laughs> Mom, I'm trying to record down here! That's what I feel like right now. Um, listen, uh, we were talking about Easter, and what I wanted to talk about was your Easter Monday, because you did something unique on Easter Monday, something that I've never done before, and something that I suspect... Uh, well, yeah, something that I've never done before, which is that you took the day off. And uh, and during that day, I suspect you did something unique as well. And how did you spend your Easter Monday? Uh, well, I, I did take Easter Monday off, which I was glad to be able to do. Uh, I haven't done that in in some time. Uh, so that was nice. And uh, we went over to some friends of ours' house by prior arrangement. Um, and we spit-roasted an entire lamb, which wow. was a nice way to spend the day. Wow. Uh, yeah, it it was a it was in fact a very pleasant way to spend the day. You get to tend the fire, you get to observe the animal turn a pleasing shade of, you know, sort of rich mahogany brown as it cooks. You get to mess around with the seasoning of the thing while it turns, and of course you get to sit by an open fire and drink beer all day and everyone has to leave you alone because you're you know, you're watching the animal. Uh, you know, right. it, it's a fire, you can't leave it unattended, so you know, you can't be asked to go and do anything else. So it was a very pleasant way to spend Easter Monday. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. The The lamb was delicious. It took me about three days to stop smelling it and smelling of it, I'm sure. Um, but, you know, well worth it. I hardly, you know, meat is best enjoyed, cooked as part of the whole animal and over an open flame. I think that is, you know, this is true. And before Easter, we had, uh, we talked to a couple of people. We didn't podcast uh, during the Triduum because you know, our frivolous conversation would have detracted rather than added. Because we're Christians, Ed. We didn't podcast during the Triduum because we are Christians. Exactly. We want other people to be Christians, too, and we wouldn't want our our triviality to uh, to have detracted from the solemnity of the, of the days. But uh, last week we talked to a couple of different people who were celebrating the Triduum in, in different and interesting places, and one of the people we spoke to is a priest in the Holy Land, uh, in fact, living in Galilee, and he pointed out to us that the first thing Christ did when appearing to his disciples in, in Galilee after the resurrection was to fire up the barbecue. Mm-hmm, and, that's right. um, you know, that this is, they, they consider this an intrinsic part of the Easter celebration is that you have to barbecue and, you know, you're, the only thing you can But didn't the barbecue, Lord grow fish? He did, which is unfortunate. And I feel like, <laughs> you know, it's kind of a bummer, but I mean, they were on the, they were on the beach and that was what was to hand, I assume. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But but very much it was impressed upon me that if you're a Christian living in the Holy Land, what a proper Easter celebration requires is a whole lamb on a on a barbecue. So that's what we did, and it was delightful. How was your Easter, JD? It was fine, but I have some more questions. Oh. Where do you get a lamb? You can get a whole lamb at Costco. They stock them seasonally for this. Mine came from uh, New Zealand, where most good lamb comes from, also Wales. What, what was its name? Uh, I named it Chardonnay. Okay. Was it was it marinated in Chardonnay? No, no, it just seemed like a, a silly, you know, name to give it. Uh so I did. 
and uh, it weighed 35 pounds, give or take. Oh, really? Yeah. It was, it it was, was a big, dressed. She was a big girl. Uh, yes. I mean, it came without feet or head. Um, what about um, innards? Did it come with... No, no, no. It came, it came innard-free. So oh, was... really? Oh, that's a shame because I do like the sweet meats. Um, you know, I'm, I'm broadly in favor of the whole, of cooking the whole thing, but I, I, this was already a nine-hour investment of time. Sure. Um, and there was considerable prep work that went into it. How do you truss it? Well, so this is an interesting thing. Uh, we we had initially, I mean, the you know, I, the the reason that we went to um, do all of this with with another uh, family who have seven children uh, is because you know it's a big lamb. So you know, in, in true Passover style, you know, if you if you can't consume an entire lamb in your own household, you should join with another one. Um, but anyway, we we had talked about uh, <laughs> we we thought it would be as simple as just you know running the spit through the middle of this thing, possibly uh-huh. down the spinal column, and and that would be that. But it, it became apparent to us that to have the kind of security we were going to need, um, it was going to need some some alternative things. So while the, the sort of front three quarters of the thing just went on the spit as you'd expect, uh, we actually butchered off the hind legs and then sort of uh, wired them in place. Oh, interesting. So that they were flush with the, with the rest of the carcass. Uh, otherwise, they'd have been hanging down and, um, and yeah, gotten yeah. too close to the fire and... And I mean, what I would say is when you are roasting your whole sheep at home, as I hope you, as I hope everyone will, will do from time to time, uh, the thing you need to account for is one, the, and this is common sense, cooking time will vary depending on size of lamb, but also different parts of the animal will cook right, uh, right, right, right. at different speeds. So you mm-hmm. want to account for that as much as possible. So you want to really keep your fire um, primarily under the hind quarters of the animal oh, okay. because the, See, I would not have, yeah. the thickest part of the of the beast and the thing that will take the longest time to cook is the hind legs um so you want to have a care for that and you want to you want to favor that side with the heat as much as possible um but the rest of, i mean it was all delicious and by the time we took it off the spit and, and cut it up uh it, it, it was pretty great all the way through i mean some parts of it were exceptional the sort of the loin you know if you if you imagine your your reassembled rack of full lamb chops the the nice loin of meat that goes that would go between the sort of top part of all that we, we cut that out um in its entirety and that was pretty glorious um i bet how about the ribs the ribs were fantastic uh they were they were basically sort of party favors we cut those off first when we took the carcass off and that was sort of you know popcorn while we were butchering the rest of the thing it was cool oh no it was delightful i really i really enjoyed it next next up pig i want to do a pig next i want to do a pig but i want to do it in a pit yes so this is the thing is i've been thinking about how to do the pig and i have a firebox um which you've made fun of me before for oh your burn uh, box that's not for that's not for that's not a food grade burn box that's just your document box i don't think you can be using it for both documents and food Well, it came with a grill on top oh so when you talk a lot of stuff about having a burn box what you mean is you have a grill no hang on first of all i don't talk a lot about having a burn box i asked you once if you had a burn barrel right not because of any concerns you may have about document destruction because i i consider the lighting of burn barrels to be a good way of de-icing your driveway or patio in a hurry that spares your back so that was that was the origin of that conversation um Uh but this particular the the box i have you can use it for a sort of backyard patio bonfire and it will take a lot of wood for that but it came with a grill grate to put on top and obviously the sort of mesh 
pyramid that sits on top of that. So if you want, you can take the grill out and you can have the anyway. I am pretty convinced, and I've seen some um, I've seen some video footage of people with similar things that suggests if I foil the whole thing up um, and get an appropriate sized pig, I can probably smoke that thing in there low and slow all day. Mm. And I am excited to try this. So that is that's the next goal. I'm thinking maybe Pentecost, a Pentecost pig, a Pentecost pig. That seems. Yeah. Seems reasonable. Sort of. Now, I have a friend who is Hawaiian. Scale down Carolina whole hog thing. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a great idea. I have a friend who is Hawaiian and, um, uh, like, traditionally Hawaiian in that you know he he knows, he knows about being Hawaiian. It's not just sort of. It's like you being English. Ed. you actually know something about your English culture and history and heritage in the same way that he actually knows something and in a certain way lives his Hawaiian history, culture, and heritage. And the reason I bring him up is because I suspect that he has. Um, he has sort of pit roasted many a pig, and um, and he's a great uh, Catholic man as well. So I, I think maybe what I'm saying is at some point we should go to Hawaii for a pillar podcast pig plow uh, together and hang out with my, my buddy Dallas. I, I'm, I, I've been to Hawaii uh, only twice, and that was on business both times. So I would be, I'd be happy to go there uh, for for, you know, a mix of and this would be business too, because what this I'm saying be is we should go there. Business, but it would be yeah, pleasure go there business. for. Yeah, we should go there for a podcast. Well, I mean, that's had, that is our business. You know, I, I feel the need to point out that we have had a generous and open offer for our sort of inaugural pillar symposium uh, in Kentucky, which you know puts us in proximity to a lot of you know other fun things like monasteries and bourbon distilleries, and so I and and we barbecue have is not unknown in the state of Kentucky. Uh, we have indeed. It is not indeed. Um, okay, great. Well, pigs, sheep aside, um, uh, we should probably start talking about the things that we're here to talk about. Okay, yeah, we can do that. Okay. Well, Ed, what do you want to talk about? Uh, well, I, we haven't had a lot of hard news this week. We have not had a lot of hard news this week, but there still are a few things to talk about. Yeah, um, and I don't feel bad about there not being a lot of hard news this week. I, I'm actually kind of grateful that we managed to have a, a Triduum and Easter week that you know the the wheels haven't fallen off anything i think it's that's kind of nice well a couple of things we cover the church and this is a week of sort of continued feasting and recovery in the life of the church this is still easter we're still in the octave of easter this is still easter this is a week of you know just feasting in the life of the church there's not a lot of business being done uh in rome or elsewhere i was in a diocesan chantry the other day which was open uh but you know you could tell that everyone was sort of still in easter mode so there's not a lot of sort of news uh, unfolding. And then um, we have uh, kind of pulled back the reins on some things that we might have published this week because, you know, we're, we're, it's not sort of RMO during Easter week to be publishing things that um, are, are sort of deeply investigative things. We've sort of held back the reins on some of those things. So that's that slowed things down a little bit here at the old pillar. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I'm happy with our... <sighs> I feel silly saying this, but I am happy with our working life reflecting a little bit better the rhythm of the life of the church. Yeah, uh, likewise. Yeah, I, yeah. I mm-hmm. think that's good and healthy. We, you know, yeah. we did some, we did some stuff that was Easter centered last week, and you know, we're we're doing some interesting things this week that are beginning to look forward a little bit. And I, I, we can talk about all of that. Let's talk about that. It's, Great. Okay. 
Well, let's start um, then by talking about something that happened. <laughs> I don't even know what any of that meant, but let's start at, um, just by talking about something that we have written about a little bit this week, because this is a point of, of interest for both of us, uh, something which now both you and I have written about, um, and it's this. There are other things that we can talk about, other current events, we probably will talk about them, but I, I want to start with this. Um, you and I uh, have both now sort of written analyses that touch in some ways upon like the future of the uh, uh, American Episcopate, and in a certain way, the future of dioceses in the United States. And the reason we did that is because uh, earlier this week, a new bishop was appointed, or a, new, a priest was appointed, the new bishop of Duluth, Minnesota. And uh, um, Duluth is a diocese that is kind of getting its second Episcopal appointment in in, in the last year. Uh, 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 bishop Serba died in 2019, and uh, subsequently... Um, a priest was appointed last June to become the Bishop of Duluth, but by September he had to withdraw his name because he had been found to have uh, serial allegations of clerical sexual abuse, which was um, obviously rather unfortunate for the, the people of the, of, of the Diocese of Duluth, to say nothing else. Uh, and so this week, the appointment of Father Dan Felton as the new Bishop of Duluth um, was the end of a sort of like I guess, 17, 18-month process in Duluth of waiting waiting for a new bishop after the death of, of Bishop Serva. Uh, and that has led me to some discussions with uh, with some canonists, friends of ours, and some, uh, even a couple of bishop friends, just about the challenge of uh, small dioceses, small rural dioceses in America, and the increasing challenge that the Holy See is finding of filling those dioceses with bishops. Uh, being a bishop is not an easy job. You've got um, to be sort of CEO of a large corporation. In some cases, that corporation is bankrupt. There are a lot of internal administrative things in the life of the church that are happening right now that are uh, by no means easy. Uh, and um, and at the same time, you've got people like us uh, wanting to look under the hood and see what's going on and make sure that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing in the way that you're supposed to be doing it. Um, and so an increasing number of priests, not because of us, but for those other reasons, an increasing number of priests are, are uh, and, and I, don't, I don't have numbers, but we hear, you and I hear consistently, both from sources in Rome and in the U.S., that an increasing number of priests are saying, no, they would not wish to become a diocesan bishop, and that that's impacted the length of time it's taken to fill a number of uh, vacancies uh, of late. And so uh, one of the things that I have been hearing uh, canonists talk about, even some bishops talk about, is the possibility of the Holy See beginning to merge dioceses in the U.S. Um, that's small rural dioceses with, you know, in some cases fewer than 50,000 Catholics, uh, with, uh, in some cases, in bankruptcy, uh, with a dwindling number of priests, um, might begin to be merged with each other, merged into uh, the metropolitan sees that are near them uh, as a way of sort of addressing the problem of sort of replicating, reinventing the wheel in each of the small diocesan sees in the United States. Uh, and, I, and I really do think that that, um, that that might happen, that there are, for example, Minnesota is a fascinating place to me because, you know, the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis is a big diocese. The Diocese of St. Cloud is a couple hundred thousand. But then the dioceses of Winona, Rochester, New Ulm, Duluth, and Crookston are all pretty small places. I mean, very small places in terms of number of Catholics, um, in terms of priests, and in terms of resources. And in fact, because of the clerical sexual abuse litigation in, in Minnesota, a, a couple of those dioceses, but not all, are, are in bankruptcy. And uh, you have to wonder, you know, those dioceses were largely erected for um, uh, uh, the sort of post-war, in some cases erected for the sort of post-war Catholic boom uh, of population, and you have to wonder if, uh, if they might indeed be um, merged or suppressed given sort of the paucity of Catholics in them and the relative decline of, of Catholic faith among those Catholics. Yeah, I, I think um, 
the the future of a number of dioceses that were sort of created and carved out in in the 20th century in the United States uh, it, it's a thorny question I think you're right that there's a lot of um, the demographics aren't great in a lot of places and the economics are even worse in in most if not all of them but I don't think and I I offered this as a sort of um, well, a response. It was a response. I mean, it was fun, and it was an organic response because, you know... We, we were didn't... just talking about it on the phone, and you were saying, you should... actually, you read my piece, and you were like, you should put in this, this, and this. And I was like, well, those aren't the things I think. Why don't you just write a response to my piece? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I I find it... Uh, it's possible. Anything is possible. God knows um, Rome can do some, do some weird and wonderful things when it gets in its head to do so. But I would be very <laughs> surprised uh, to find... Rome looking to suppress or, uh, you know, merge U.S. dioceses uh, any time in the near future, because this is a massive canonical undertaking. I mean, it's not, you know, I know, and you pointed this out that they did it in Alaska uh, not too terribly long ago. But I mean, and I don't last wanna, year, yeah, and I, I don't want to be snotty about the Great White North, but you know, it, it, <laughs> but you're going to be. But I mean, come on. <laughs> It would be difficult to consider the the formerly separate diocese of what Anchorage and Juneau. Yeah, as the archdiocese of Anchorage and the diocese of Juneau. Right. It's not like they had a particular um, cultural distinction between the two places to begin with. It's not like you're talking about, you know, you're talking about huge tracts of land with a very dispersed population. the The act of folding those two into one would be very different than, for example, for example, reincorporating the diocese of Greensburg back into the diocese of Pittsburgh. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's a totally different ballgame. You know, to, I just don't see Rome reaching for the the sort of nuclear option and redrawing the diocesan map of the U.S. unless there's really no other option. And I think there are lots of other options, and there are other options I hope they would consider first. And I also think there are just sort of matters of practical utility that suggest themselves as being more apt uh, in the near term than than abolishing dioceses effectively. I think. Well, what? No, go ahead. Oh, okay. I, I was going to say, you know, you're right that many dioceses are struggling financially. Um, and, and there is this problem of an institutional footprint uh, in, in many places that, you know, the the sort of the, the Catholic landscape at the diocesan level is is basically the the, the hollowed out ruins of a, a 1950s Catholic uh, church that was built for and by a much larger, much more stable, much more generous, much more observant Catholic population than we currently have. And I think you're right to say that that poses serious structural questions about the viability of these dioceses. But, you know, what the idea of merging a diocese, merging two dioceses is uh, you, you get the presumed benefit of, and I think you pointed this out, economies of scale, that things like uh, chancery office management of, for example, Catholic education or Catholic charities or uh, personnel issues, legal issues, uh, you know, payroll, all that sort of stuff. You get economies of scale if they're done at the diocesan level. And if you get a smaller diocese that's struggling to do that, merging into a larger one that's a little more stable, you can you can keep those economies of scale maybe, but I'm not convinced that those economies of scale are viable in the medium term anyway. Um, I mean, show me the large archdiocese that isn't shutting parishes and Catholic schools faster than rural ones. Uh, I, you know, I, I just don't see it happening. I the think... West, because the, the West is the place, because well, there is, yeah. um, because there's both a, a migration of Catholicism 
westward and southward, but there's also an urbanization of Catholicism in those areas. Right, but that's so I, I would for say the purposes the of this is, conversation, is you can't merge the Diocese of New Ulm with the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, and you can't. No, 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 no. Fair. I mean, well, no, no, you can't. You can't. Whatever, whatever crazy thing you're thinking, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> you're not. You're right. not taking Greensburg and merging into Las Vegas. It's not happening. All right. Actually, ahead. that will be really interesting. That will be fascinating. Actually, it would. Yeah. Can you imagine like the Episcopal vicar getting on the plane every week to go visit the Vishnu? Vegas, baby. Yeah, and you know maybe there's something too like you know dioceses use all these when dioceses essentially merge or consolidate parishes they basically use all these euphemisms right uh, clustering twinning yeah. these kinds of things it really would be something if the holy see said they were going to start like twinning twinning um, dioceses yeah rural western dioceses with uh with rural east coast dioceses largely what it would be is a migration of statuary of beautiful statues from the warehouses on the east coast that contain them from shuttered parishes to the the parishes that are being built in the west most of which uh well unfortunately some of which resemble like, you know, sort of uh, megachurch assembly hall. So they could use some of that statuary. So maybe the twinning. Maybe the maybe twinning. The twinning the although but suspect, not, in real, not, not realistic. You wouldn't get that either. And the reason is because if Rome tried to do that to, to U.S. Right. bishops, the U.S. bishops would go apoplectic because oh, they could... Oh, it's not sit, actually. I was just kidding. No, I, I know. But I'm saying it's instructive to, to talk about why is because the U.S. bishops go apoplectic and say, this isn't twinning. This isn't an acceptable way to treat discrete portions of the people of God with their own character, which kind which of... Which is ironic. Which is ironic because it's exactly what they do at the parish level all the time. Leaving that to one side... What the point I was making was, I don't think that the, you know, in in the parts of the country where this is a problem, it's a problem, I would argue, more for the larger, more established diocese than it is for the smaller, more rural ones. And I don't know that this is a system worth saving in its current form. And more to the point, I don't think it's a system you can save in its current form. I think that long term, you can't have the Archdiocese of Chicago maintain all of, I mean, it's not maintaining, it's closing them down at a rate of knots. The kind of parishes uh, that, you know, used to be sustained by huge Catholic populations that merited, you know, three different Catholic parishes within two blocks of each other, or Catholic schools in the same way. The Diocese of Pittsburgh is, what, reducing its parish parishes in number by, what, two-thirds? Something yeah, like something that. Like that. Mm -hmm. You know, so what are you going to benefit by merging smaller dioceses into these things when the, the sort of financial, practical, administrative side of it is already f collapsing in on itself? You know, the this is not a system... This, this is not a... You're not going to bail this system out, I don't think. And what it would be nice, I would hope, is if we could think differently about what the diocese can look like and how the diocesan bishop and his chancery can relate to ministries which the diocese has traditionally in this country had sort of um, uh, a sort of operating managerial concern over like catholic schools and catholic charities and what would it look like if instead of the diocese trying to maintain this sort of centralized bureaucracy and control over it said no uh you know if if the people in x part of the diocese want to have a catholic school and open one that's great more power to their elbow let them do it and their relationship to the diocese will be one that is catholic and spiritual not administrative that the bishop will guarantee the catholicity of the institution and can arrange to visit it to ensure that the faith is being properly taught and nothing against the faith is being improperly taught um but you know there's no reason for the for the bishop to have to worry about you know 
hirings and firings of teachers outside of that narrow agreement, for example, um, or how you're going to get the money to keep it on. That if the local community is there and can fund it and sustain it, then let them do it. Well, I, and, what I like about that is is not just how how what you're saying relates to kind of this question about how to sort of um, sustain the uh, you know operational viability of, of dioceses in the 21st century. What I like about what you're saying is that it actually seems to me, uh, in that sense, there are other points about which I disagree with you. But in this in this sense, what I like about what you're saying is that it strikes me that um, what you're proposing, which is essentially that the bishop should um, teach, sanctify, and govern, and um, lay people or institutes of consecrated life should engage in sort of the church's missionary apostolates or catechetical apostolates or formational apostolates is like that actually is our theology. That's the, the- it, that's it, the ecclesiology of Vatican II. That's what we're supposed right. to do. It, it is the case that um, in the United States, for various historical reasons, dioceses sort of have taken up um, a lot of different sort of mantles of apostolic life. Um, that dioceses became sort of the generators of of the school of Catholic school systems, and they did so because there was a genuine need to care for Im- immigrant immigrant children who were coming to this country and being sent to anti-Catholic Protestant schools, gov- government schools, which were Protestant in nature. Um, there was a genuine sort of uh, well, there was a way in which, um, in some cases. Catholic uh, hospitals um, were diocesan apostolates and then gradually became the apostolates of religious institutes and then gradually became um, the apostolates of self-perpetuating uh, lay boards overseen directly by the Holy See with some real problems there that we could get into another time. Um, yep. But the, yeah, the, the ecclesiology of Vatican II emphasizes both um, the sort of legitimate governing function of the bishop and his legitimate ministries of teaching and sanctifying and... Um, the legitimate call of um, lay Catholics to commit themselves to the church's apostolic life. And what that looks like is a place where Catholics are, uh, a church where Catholics are confident enough in their baptism to be banded together to uh, engage in apostolic projects under the governance of the bishop, but not sort of um, whatever the bishop said. You know, yes, bishop, whatever you say is what we want to do, or tell us what to do, bishop, and we'll do it, or tell us how much money you need, bishop, and we'll do it. But uh, we have a vision um, for this, and bishop, perhaps help us as our spiritual leader, to sort of discern the wisdom and prudence and veracity of this vision and then um, exercise oversight over it um, and teach us the faith, but that um, it is indeed the call of Catholics to be engaged in the missionary and um, and apostolic life of the Church. Right, and what we're facing right now in in the sort of latter stages of this uh, this huge institutional footprint, which is no longer sustainable because the community that built it and it was built to serve no longer exists in in the size and form that it used to is we have the sort of um, inertia and apathy of a, of a kind of apostolic welfare state where you know who is who is the primarily responsible for the Catholic education of children parents parents right but at the moment there is and you can see this in many places I'm not saying it's universal by any stretch of the imagination I'm not making you know I'm not saying this is everyone and everywhere but I'm saying you can see in places the sort of well, that's the church's deal, and how's the church? Well, there should be a Catholic school, and where should the Catholic school? Well, it should be in the parish, and the diocese should run it, and I should just be able to send my kid there, and it should be that easy because that's how easy it was for my parents or my grandparents. And you know, fair enough. It's nice to think that we could have that if we could, but we don't. And you know, if we have this idea that you know, well, the institutional church will do this, it stifles lay. Spontaneity right. All, all and of those things reflect an ecclesiological error. All of those things that you just said reflect an ecclesiological error, a common one. 
So dear listeners, if you find yourselves adhering to this ecclesiological error, be rest assured that it is indeed a common one, um, which is to say um, that the church is some uh, is principally the church's hierarchical constitution, and that the church is something that is not the same as me. Um, I don't want to sound sort of like a 70s banner liberal, but um, the church is the communion of the baptized. There is a truth to the idea that we are um, the church or constitutive elements of the church because the church is the communion of the baptized. Well, the parishes ch- and dioceses are defined right. in law as portions of the people as, of God. As, as communities, as fundamentally Christian communities. And uh, and we have a tendency, I think, to think of those things, the diocese, the parish, as the institutional, it's sort of hierarchical constitution and institutional footprint. The parish is the, bil- the parish center and the church and the rectory. Um, but the parish is actually the portion of the people of God. And should there be a Catholic school in the parish? Sure. So the question becomes like, well, what are we, the parish, uh, going to do about that? Um, now that is not, or, you know, should there be um, ca- uh, ca- genuinely Catholic sort of works of mercy in this diocese? Sure. Well, what are we, the Catholics of this diocese, or, or some of us who feel a call to do X, Y, or Z, or have the capacity to do X, Y, or Z, going to do about it? But so often the ecclesiological error that I think uh, underpins so many of these things is this sort of segregationist idea that thinks of, um, me as a member of the parish or a member of the diocese, but not as a sort of constitutive part of it, rather me sort of having an institutional inscription to it. And and that leads, I think, to the kind of passivity that we're talking about. Now, a trans- transition from that into, um, into a different sort of mode of thinking about ourselves in the life of the church is a two-sided proposition. And what I mean by that is that um, it is not only lay Catholics who have um, a disordered sense of what it means to be a part of the church. Um, it is often the case that ministry and apostolate in various forms have been professionalized uh, through historical accidents, but also in ways in which sort of um, apostolic initiative can be looked at with um, suspicion or uncertainty or yeah, absolutely a need to control on the part of yeah. uh, uh, on the part of clerics that prevents sort of the 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 expression of the Christian life, which which is an, an obligation of baptism. Absolutely, it can. And I mean, this is, and you know, again, it's not, I don't think, sinister in intent that, you know, nobody, right. I, I can, yeah. nobody sets out to create a, you know, a, a diocesan office of Catholic schools or Catholic education, which, you know, comes up with a raft of policies with the intention of stifling initiative or stopping, you know, collectives of homeschooling parents who want to, you know, roll it out into a Catholic school for their local community and, you know, whatever else. And say, well, you got to, you know, you got to meet these criteria and sign up to this. The purpose of it is none of these things are created with the purposes of being um, exclusive or exclusionary or killing initiative. But that's what they end up doing because, you know, a a policy that is written for a, you know, a a wide network of things that all need to conform and meet central standards becomes in that way servicing only the things that fit into that institutional model. Um, you know, which is not to say that there isn't expertise that could be useful and stuff, but I just wonder if it, you know, couldn't be better deployed uh, if it were, if the whole thing was said, well, we're not going to try and run this as a, as a central concern, but let it really be grassroots. Let it really be from the ground up. And then, for example, parishes and dioceses that have a surplus of real estate and, and buildings, like I, in the Archdiocese of Washington, D.C., I know several priests who have schools attached to their parishes, school buildings that haven't been Catholic schools in a long time. And right, they've been they're rented out to charter schools. Yeah, mm-hmm. secular charter yeah. schools. And it drives yeah. the priests crazy that they're looking at these beautiful Catholic school buildings. In which, which, they could use for, which could be used in the parish for apostolic initiatives of various kinds. Yeah, but instead mm-hmm. are given over to secular 
um, charter schools where the faith cannot be taught, where the priest cannot go, even right. though it's his building, and you know right. it drives them nuts. Mm-hmm. So I, I just wonder if there isn't a way of reimagining the entire concept of you know how. And well, the other thing is, you know, we talked about the idea of you know how many priests are uh, saying no when getting the call and being asked to be a serving diocesan bishop. And I mean, it's not a mystery to me why they would do that. I mean, I've heard f- from different people who have been in one way or another involved in the process of appointing or trying to appoint bishops, giving numbers that range anywhere from between one in four to one in three priests mm. in the United States saying no mm. to to the call. Now, I and think fathers, that, if you're listening, um, think about that very seriously. If if when if and when if you're a listener to our show, I presume that you're kind of the kind of priest who is eminently qualified um, to be a bishop. And so, if the Apostolic Nuncio calls you and asks you to become the bishop of Timbuktu or anywhere else, th- think very seriously about that. I I know a priest. Now he's in his seventies. Well, no, now he's past his eight. Now he's in his eighties. He's he's holy. I mean, he's genuinely a holy person. And um, and he told me one time we were just sitting together and talking, and I asked him. I said I heard a rumor that you were called to become the bishop of this diocese, and um, and you you turned it down. Is it true? And then he said, Yeah. He said I just didn't feel like I had. It. I I just didn't feel like I had what it would take. Like I I I I felt like. Um, I wouldn't be uh, capable as an administrator, but I especially wouldn't be capable as a spiritual leader or as a public person. And um, I just didn't think that I was going to be able to do it. And I was thinking about how much work it would be, and I was kind of afraid of the obligations of it. And, and he said that um, there hasn't been a time that has gone by since when he hasn't regretted that, because he said what he fundamentally realized about his own situation after that is he didn't trust the Lord to kind of qualify him for the for the position. You know, he he... Not, not that he didn't trust the church, just like Quad Church, to discern it, but he, he felt that he hadn't, you know, trusted the Lord to, to kind of endow him with the grace necessary for the position to which he had been invited, and he had a lot of regret for that. So, fathers, think seriously about that, should you be invited to the Sacred Episcopate. Okay, said Contra, how many good priests do we know who are parish priests and who say to us all the time, I didn't go to seminary, I didn't discern a vocation to be... Sure a school administrator or an accountant or, uh, you know, totally an HR it. manager or any of the totally things that has come with a perfectly normal-sized parish in many diocese. I totally get why you wouldn't want it. Why in God's name would you say yes to running a gigantic company employing hundreds of people that has a failing revenue stream is, at, in well, many here's cases... Well, why. I mean, here's why, honestly. It is my honest view of it. I think everyone has to discern for themselves, et cetera, et cetera. But my honest view of it is... Because somebody has to be the bishop. Oh, right, and... but, but but this is my point. How many of them would say yes if all of a sudden the, what was being asked of them was, no, we just, we'd like you to be a bishop. We'd like well, you that's... to teach and sanctify and govern. We don't expect you to be a CEO or an executive chairman of the board of a and giant corporation. And that's my point, is that it's not, the, it's not the Holy See, the apostolic see, that has to remake the American Episcopacy or remake the institutional structure of the American diocese. It's American bishops. It's the bishop of, yeah. you know, the, the bishop of Oil City, Pitt, Junk, what? Are you, are you trying to say Pithole, Pennsylvania? Yes, the Diocese of Pithole, Pennsylvania. Thank you. Uh, uh, it is the di- it is the Bishop of Pithole, Pennsylvania, who has to say, "I'm going to do this in a different way." Yeah, uh, I'm going to say yes. I'm going to I'm going to tell the people of God, "Look, it is not my job to run everything. It is not even ecclesiologically proper to run everything. We have these resources. Some of them, some of these things are working. Some of these things aren't working. We want you to pray and think seriously about." how the Lord might be calling you to serve the apostolic mission of the church, and I want you to come and talk to me about it, and if there are resources that I can make available, I, I want to make them available. I want to help you discern these things. I want to help, you know, I want to help you sort of take the reins of Christian responsibility 
uh, not in a way that undermines the authority of, of him as bishop, but um, but in a way that helps you step into um, the, the, the call of your baptism and the qualification of your confirmation. I, I think that would be very interesting to see attempted. And I, I, ironically, I think the place where you could attempt it um, first and perhaps most effectively would be in the kind of smaller diocese of yeah. Pitt Hole, Pennsylvania, for example. And maybe um, people would imitate it, maybe they wouldn't. But I do yeah. see schools offices in, in, in the U.S. that are now saying more and more, we perceive it as our mission as a Catholic school's office, to, as, a, as a Catholic education office, to support homeschooling parents in the mission of Catholic education, to support public school parents in various ways in the mission of Catholic education, to support initiatives that come from parents. I do see that. Um, I do see... Uh, dioceses that are that are saying, yeah, these um, uh, these people want to start this initiative of uh, of charity, this kind of ministry to the uh, to the poor or or to the indigent, and these are resources that we have available. I've seen religious institutes with buildings sort of make those buildings available for the formation of sort of Christian communities of, of various kinds of young people, and uh, and those things are are laudable. So it's not as if this doesn't happen. I, I think bishops are doing this, but there can be a lot more intentionality about it. Uh, to be sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some things, right? The tribunal, it's not as if a bunch of people can say, hey, uh, we really feel like God wants us to start a tribunal. No, um, no. Right? I mean, some things are the... No, some things are proper, but that's proper governing, to the governance function precisely. of the bishop. Precisely. And this is what I'm saying, it's getting away from the a sort of um, a mentality of diocesan socialism, which mm-hmm. is right. that you have to confuse everything with government and everything that touches government, therefore, has to be owned and controlled mm-hmm. by government. Which right. is not what you need to. Some things are proper to government. The judiciary, for example, is proper to government, but the, you know you don't need to have every other aspect of um, ecclesiastical society and life be formally controlled and uh, an owned and operated subsidiary of the diocesan chancery. You just don't. And this is going to be a necessary thing, as you say. The, the, that, this, yeah, this change is coming, trans- whether we like it or not. Transformation, right? Is going to be a necessary transformation of the church in the United States because. We're an increasingly secular society with an increasingly smaller number of people who practice the faith, and dioceses are increasingly less. You know, the the hierarchical constitution of dioceses, dioceses Inc., are increasingly less equipped to do the things which are um, the 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 mission of the gospel. Right. Now, for laity, that means something. For for people like you and me, Ed, that means something uh, interesting. And and I see this more and more with people who have worked in the church. I, I see now people who have worked in parishes and worked in dioceses and religious education and, um, and youth ministry and, um, family ministry and these kinds of things sort of branching off into building their own, um, local apostolic projects, which, um, you know, the challenge is figuring out ways to fund them, which is always the challenge, but, but branching off into building their own local apostolic projects, which are formed on sort of, okay, well, we're, we've been doing family ministry in the diocese, but, we're going to move away from that and just start forming sort of family faith groups and do some faith formation with them and, you know, some human formation with them and encourage them to, to do other things. Or we've been working in uh, Catholic charities for a while, but we're going to sort of move into our own Catholic healthcare space or, you know, Catholic social advocacy space. And and, and, and I think that's great. The challenge is always for those things going to be funding. Um, but but I do think there's a real value to being able to say, look, I'm a baptized Catholic and I'm going to be able to, I'm going to like work for the mission of the gospel in this way. Because all of us, in one way or another, need to have the whole of our life oriented towards the mission of the gospel. Right. Well, that that doesn't mean that everyone's profession needs to be some, you know, St. Paul was a tent maker. It doesn't mean that everyone's profession needs to sort of be entirely derived from the ministry of the gospel. But um, but it does mean, I think, that all of us have to do some self-examination about the way in which uh, our gifts, talents, ap- and aptitudes are, are oriented that way. 
Yeah. Which I've talked about before. Yeah. And I mean, there's a reality. There are people who are highly trained and highly qualified to work for and serve in the sort of um, institutional structures of the church and find it increasingly hard to make a living. I, you know, I've been upfront about this before. I didn't go into Catholic journalism because I, you know, couldn't wait to, you know, find a, a new career. It was because I couldn't make a living as a canon lawyer. <laughs> you know, there was all the work in the world, but I couldn't get paid for it. Right. And, you know, that was a big part of why I, you know, came into Catholic journalism. So, I, I mean, I'm sensitive to, you know, people who, who are having a difficult time in putting their professional experience and expertise to work in the church and, and having, you know, getting the kind of remuneration that's necessary to, for example, raise a family on. I, I, and not everyone should expect to, right? I mean, not, not everyone, everyone should expect yeah, to. Right. Again, there's, yeah, there's that, that. This is the other thing: is working for the church doesn't mean that you know you're guaranteed a career by any stretch of the imagination, right? Which is why I think it's so helpful to think about working for the gospel. Some people are sort of employed by the institution, but all of us are equally responsible for working for the mission of the gospel, right? And, yeah. and coming up with alternative ways to try and you know put that at the service of the church's mission rather than. At the you know at the um, control and administration of the institutional church itself at every opportunity. This seems like a good time, Ed, to say that you and I, uh, for for what it's worth, this seems like a good time for a commercial. Uh, you and I are for this was not my intention, but you and I are for whatever it's worth. Doing what we can to put our own uh, professional aptitude at the service of the gospel and at the mission of the church. And I, I guess this isn't a commercial so much as a thank you. We're able to do that because of uh, those who subscribe to, um, uh, to The Pillar. So I, 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 we owe a tremendous debt of gratitude to those who subscribe to The Pillar because we genuinely— um, First of all, I, I mean, I, I think— I, I hope they feel like they're getting their money's worth. I think we're making news worth paying for. Um, and I think we're serving the church in a way that's important. Um, but I, I hope that they feel as if they're getting a, um, their money's worth. And I hope they know that we are um, edified to be able to put our own you know, particular gifts, such as they are, at the mission of the church because of their largesse. Absolutely. Um, I very much echo the thank you that you, you had there. I would... I, I would add. I would add the explicit commercial if you if you can subscribe. Oh, gosh. <laughs> please do. Okay. Well, listen. That was not my intention. No, but uh, I mean, while we're here, I'm uh, speaking of here, right. you know fi- trying to find new ways to <laughs> do what you yeah, do yeah. in a Catholic way and not. While we're here, if you'd like to subscribe to Pillar, we think that we make news worth paying for, and we think we hope that if you think so too, you will consider subscribing uh, to our work, um, which you can do at pillarcatholic.com. Now, um, with now, that said. On. Yeah, with One that thing, said, the... No, go ahead. Sorry, I've been talking most of this. No, please. What I was going to say is the reason that you started looking at this and the reason I ended up writing a sort of response to your take on the idea of diocesan mergers is because there's a shortage of Episcopal candidates and there's places like the Diocese of Gaylord in Michigan hasn't had a bishop in over a year now. Um, and there is a shortage of, or a seeming shortage of guys willing to be bishops. But that's not exactly true so for example while it seems to be very difficult to find people priests willing uh or qualified to uh to be asked to and then say yes to serving as the diocese bishop of gaylord michigan or new Ulm, minnesota um this isn't true everywhere that there are major metropolitan dioceses that are stacking their bench of bishops pretty deep with auxiliaries and they seem to have no problem so while i said you know gaylord's been without a bishop since march 25th 2020 Um. Give or Something take like that. March twenty fifth, we'll say. 
roundabout. It's just over a month, or just sorry, just over a year that they've been without a bishop now. Uh, but in that year, the Archdiocese of Chicago has uh, has consecrated three new auxiliaries. They've got seven spare bishops, as it were. Um, so guys are saying yes to that. Candidates are being identified for that. And, you know, there are a lot of dioceses, not a lot, there are some dioceses that have, a, if you like, their bench runs pretty deep. And I think increasingly, if you can't find priests from the, if not the diocese, at least the sort of territory, the broader territory of the, the vacant diocese uh, who are willing to step up, you're just going to see Rome looking to auxiliary bishops because they're already vetted, they're already consecrated, they're already bishops, they don't have a diocese, and asking them to take them. And I think that they probably will because a bishop really should have a diocese and we can, if we have time later at the end of the show, we can talk about whether or not the concept of an auxiliary bishop or a titular bishop is ecclesiologically sound. I have my reservations. But anyway, um, I think this is what is likely to happen. And that's going to have some knock-on effects itself because one, um, you know, there's a different canonical method, a different canonical process for the appointment of an auxiliary bishop than there is for a diocesan bishop. A diocesan bishop, the, the, the sort of search committee, if you like, is the nuncio who is supposed to consult with the neighboring, the bishops of the neighboring diocese and of the metropolitan province. He's supposed to talk to, you know, the priest council of the, of the vacant diocese and all this sort of stuff and, and come up with a list of three names, which goes to Rome and Rome can, you know, add or subtract from there if they feel it's necessary depending on what they think and then that goes to the pope and the pope's supposed to pick from this list and fine and dandy but it's you know there's a wide consultation and there can be you know differences of opinion sometimes very strong differences of opinion um and it's a, it's a whole thing auxiliary bishops all that needs to happen there is a diocesan bishop who thinks he needs one goes to rome and says i need a i need an auxiliary bishop here's a list of three guys that i'd like you to pick one from now rome can say yes or no to that list of three or yes or no to the request to have an auxiliary at all but if they're going to give him an auxiliary they're basically going to pick from the guys he has proposed himself and so the idea is that the auxiliaries of a diocese reflect because the guy picked them himself um the the diocesan bishop and his character and his mind for the diocese because an auxiliary bishop has to reflect and very closely collaborate with the diocesan bishop and so on but if you start raiding the benches of places like Chicago for their auxiliaries to make them diocesan bishops in other parts of the country, what you're going to end up is with is a sort of um, a cultural exporting of the the sort of Episcopal mentality of Chicago arriving in, say, Minnesota or, you know, wherever else they, they might go to. And that's going to be a thing. It's, See, I... It, You've been saying this all day, yeah. that that's going to be a thing, that this exportation. I do think that a, a, a metropolitan with a lot of auxiliaries, so say the Archbishop of Chicago who has seven auxiliary bishops, I do think that if he went to the Apostolic Nuncio and said, hey, I know that between now and next year, you basically have 19 vacant or becoming vacancies that you have to deal with. And, you know, I am blessed to have these seven auxiliaries, but well, some of these functions can be performed by priests, and I have all priests. Of these and functions can all be performed of these functions by, can be performed by nobody priests. Nobody needs an auxiliary and, bishop. And I'd like to make available to you, you know, these guys. F feel free to appoint these guys. I think if he did that, then m many of those guys probably would be appointed. Um, however, I, I, I don't... I. It seems to me that a very sort of con typical path in the history of the church in the United States is that bishops who begin their Episcopal ministry as auxiliary bishops become subsequent to that bishops of other places and perhaps subsequent to that metropolitans in, other, in places larger than that. So you've been saying like, well, you know, it would feel to many dioceses like they wouldn't get a homegrown bishop or they'd be exporting or something like that. But that just feels to me like the ordinary course of being 
I don't. I don't think that's true. I, I think um, I. I don't have the numbers in front of me to back it up. Neither do I. I mean, we're totally just spitballing but here. I. I would be willing to. I'd be willing to bet a. A nice, a nice, not expensive, but a nice watch. That um, there are, if you looked at the years, say nineteen fifty through nineteen through two thousand, that the number of bishops who became diocesan bishop for the first time, having previously been auxiliary, would be less than twenty percent. I think that's probably true. And that However, most priests are, most bishops, most diocesan bishops come from the ranks of the priests. And there are places that have cultures of presbytery. Think of how many... Yeah, there are places that have cultures. How many bishops you know, do you know in the United States serving now as diocesan bishops whose last stop was they were priests of a, of a Pennsylvania diocese that wasn't Philadelphia? Right. Yes. Many diocesan Lots. bishops are, are Lots, because there's a sure. culture there, there's and, a culture. They, mm -hmm. and that culture is reflected in the bishops that serve those dioceses of that region. Now, yeah. So that's they, there's that's a cultural exactly difference. My point. If everybody's been, a carpetbagger from Chicago. You're going to get. <laughs> it's going to change the culture. It's going to be a totally different management culture. You know, a bishop from the big city. Who's I don't just, know. I, no, I don't I, think there's. I don't think. I think you're making a. I think you're making a mountain out of a miter here. I. I don't think that's. A thing because I think it's too. Uh, yes, I'm not you're saying right. It's that, the end of the world. I'm no, saying it's going to be a thing, and it's yeah. Gonna I think have you're facts. right. Well, I think you're right that um, probably fewer than twenty percent of bishops in the United States since 1950 have begun as auxiliary bishops and gone somewhere else. However, I think the number of auxiliary bishops who began as auxiliary bishops and went so, and subsequently went somewhere else is probably much higher. I think right, it is but that an is ordinary trajectory for auxiliary bishops to the province. Like if you're an auxiliary oh, and you're bishop. thinking that the auxiliary bishops of, of Chicago might be sort of flung across the U.S. in order to address these coming 19 vacancies. I, I don't think that the seven auxiliary bishops currently serving in Chicago or the six auxiliary bishops currently serving in Brooklyn um, are all going to stay within the metropolitan provinces. Uh, oh, that's okay. I've been not understanding what you've been making a big deal out of. So you're saying you think it's a big deal if an auxiliary bishop from Chicago goes and becomes the bishop of like... Gaylord, Michigan. Right. Mm -hmm. New Orleans, but the, Minnesota. But isn't the bishop? I mean, that even that already happens. I'm I'm thinking like I, it does happen. And again, I'm not saying that this is that this never has happened before, or it's the end of the world if it does. But I'm saying if this becomes the norm, that's going to be a big cultural shift in the church. Every bishop is going to be arriving, arriving okay. into town on the train. If it were to be city. the norm, if it yeah, if it were to be the norm that most diocesan bishops were. First auxiliary bishops in metropolitan seats. Let, let's just say even if the 19 dioceses that are going to fall vacant, that are due to fall vacant in the next 12 months are filled that way. Is that not going to be a seismic shift? Uh, I think it, I think if, I think if six or seven, but let's just say six, I think if six dioceses were filled with Chicago auxiliaries in the next, uh, in the next year, two years, and five dioceses were filled with Brooklyn auxiliaries, that would be a, that would bring a certain cultural shift to the church to be sure. I guess I just don't. I guess I just not. I, I guess I just don't think that's especially likely, or would be as big of a shift. Because actually, those Chicago auxiliaries are not especially sort of uh, cut from the same cloth. The same cloth as who? As one another. As one another. Right. Ah. Uh, I mean, one of them is a CFR, for heaven's sake. I. I they have okay. to be cut from kind of the same cloth because that's the whole reason why auxiliary bishops are appointed in a different way is they're all of a mind with a diocesan bishop who proposes them and requests them. I hear you. I, I do not it, – it, that this theory that you are – this thing that you are suggesting would be a seismic shift does not, in my 
admittedly limited experience working in the church in the United States strike me as something that would be uh, a, 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 gr- a ground-shaking kind of a thing. Okay, let me let me just let me let's take this to a thirty thousand foot abstract level. Where are the where is the number of faithful Catholics in the U.S. coming from or growing? That feels like a trick question. It's not a trick question. Where I don't know, Ed. Where, where are the no? But we just, we talked about the beginning of the episode. Where where is the church growing in terms of numbers of Catholics? Oh oh okay, faithful. Yeah, being a okay. lay faithful. Where is the lay faithful growing in the Catholic Church in the United States? Oh, um, the church is uh, certainly growing in the West and in the South. Okay, so if you don't think that it would be a weird dynamic in the church if the if the engine of growth amongst the Catholic lady is primarily in the southwest of the country, but all of the bishops are increasingly coming from the Northeast, you don't think that would be weird and a cultural mismatch? Uh, I do. I don't know. I... I don't know. Uh, okay, so again, I'm not saying it's the end of the world. Do you think it was weird? Do you think it would be weird, let's say, if an auxiliary of Chicago became Archbishop of Atlanta? Yeah, I think that but is. That's weird. what happened. I that's, know it is what happened. Wilton Gregory. Yeah, I, know I think that's. Is. I guess I'm just saying. I think yeah, that's. But if you asked Wilton Gregory what his um, preferred career path would have been, I'm sure he'd tell you he would have preferred to stay in Chicago. I can definitely tell you he would Probably. have preferred to go home to Chicago than to go to D.C. I mean, yeah, yeah, bishops yeah. with a mind for service will go where they're asked. But that's not the career path anyone maps out for themselves. Yeah. Okay. I okay. I I hear you. Now you want to talk about auxiliary bishops. I don't totally get it, but I hear you. You want to talk about auxiliary bishops, qua auxiliary bishops. I think you you have benchwarmers views. You have views on auxiliary bishops, and, yeah, and you want to. We should get rid of them. them. They shouldn't exist. Okay. Because because they serve no function, JD. Now, Let me rephrase that. They serve no unique function. There is no function that perform, is performed by an auxiliary bishop that cannot be performed by a properly delegated priest. And a bishop without a diocese is a weird thing. And also, in, for example, in dioceses that have lots of... Well, first of all, can we just say that the way diocese, auxiliary bishops are allocated in the United States is crazy. I mean, it's done because, you know, you, the bishop says, I need an auxiliary bishop, and he either gets one or not the Rome's behest. But the result is that there's no there's no clear pattern of distribution here. You know, we, we said... That, should, that there's no clear pattern of distribution, that there's no kind of consistent mechanism for the assignment of auxiliary bishops. No, Chicago's got 2.1 million Catholics, and it's got seven auxiliaries. Right. LA's got 4.3 million Catholics, it's got five. Brooklyn's right. got 1.5 million Catholics, which is, you know, less than, you know, it's like less than half of... Um, LA, nearly a quarter of LA. It's got six. Houston's got 1.7 million Catholics compared to... And it has one auxiliary. It has one auxiliary. I mean, there's no rhyme or reason to this. And the reason that there's, you know, presumably only one auxiliary in Houston and there's seven in Chicago is Cardinal DiNardo doesn't think he needs seven auxiliary bishops, but Cardinal Supic does. And, you know, I'm not... That's not to make a judgment here about, you know... I'm not saying there needs to be yeah, equity yeah, yeah, yeah. in the appointment of auxiliary bishops. I'm just saying it's clear you can manage a diocese of those sizes without a ton of spare bishops because you just here's don't my, need them. Here's my thing about that, I guess. But here's Christus Dominus 25. The pastoral office of bishops should be so constituted for the governing of dioceses that the good of the Lord's flock is always of supreme consideration. Rightly to achieve this goal, auxiliary bishops will frequently be appointed because the diocese cannot personally, because the diocesan bishop cannot personally fulfill all his episcopal duties as the good of souls demands, either because of the vast extent of the diocese or the great number of inhabitants, or because of the special nature of the apostolate or other reasons of a different different nature. Sometimes, in fact, a particular need requires that a coadjutor be appointed. Coadjutor and auxiliary bishop should be granted faculties to render their work proper. 
This, of course, should always be accomplished without detriment to the unity of the diocesan administration and the authority of the diocesan bishop. Co-juter and auxiliary bishops, since they are called to share the burden of diocesan bishops, should so exercise their office that they may proceed in all matters in single-minded agreement with him. They should always show respect and reverence for the diocesan bishop, and he, in turn, should have fraternal love for a co-juter and auxiliary bishops and hold them in esteem. I, um... To the extent that the good of souls demands, the diocesan bishops should not hesitate to ask the competent authority, the congregation for bishops, for one or more auxiliaries who will be appointed for the diocese without the right of succession. I think that if Christus Dominus says, hey, this can be a very good idea for the good of souls, I'm willing to think it can be a very good idea for the good of souls, even if it's kind of a little bit historically, even if the notion of, of auxiliary bishops is a little bit historically weird in that, you know, a bishop is usually the bishop of a place. I think transferring bishops is even weirder. So I'm willing to concede if Christus Dominus says it. I'm cool with it. I ain't got no beef with that. Okay, so first so of all, first of all, um, the passage you just read of Christus Dominus commingles two very, very different things. A coadjutor bishop or an auxiliary with special faculties fulfill a very different function, which is they are supplying a lack of which, the ability which, to actually do the governing function of the diocese. I, I think a, I think an auxiliary with with special faculties is an especially helpful kind of thing. Right. So if a bishop if a bishop is an Anglo and he has a very large Spanish speaking Hispanic community in his diocese, or he has a very large Vietnamese community in his diocese, or if he's a Canadian bishop with both francophones and anglophones, an auxiliary bishop can be a sort of transformational presence in the life of the diocese, and I think that's good. Sure. But I, I'm saying leaving out coadjutors and auxiliaries with special faculties because those meet a particular thing i'm talking about your sort of bog standard auxiliary bishop who gets made episcopal vicar for this portion of the territory or and both basically he, oh so he's a territorial vicar and he's riding a confirmation circuit yeah you don't like that i don't there's no need for it because first of all it can be done by a priest so why would you confuse the faith by having multiple bishops? but here's the thing if your diocese is so big and you have for example 4.3 million catholics and you can't possibly have a proper intimate pastoral relationship with that number of people. You can't get around to the whole diocese on any kind of like a regular basis. You can't, you know, you can't be among the flock in any practical way when the flock's that big. Break up the diocese. Don't have yeah. a whole ton of, because no Catholic, apart from like, you know, if it's a dedicated one, like you said, you've got a giant Vietnamese community. And so you have a Vietnamese auxiliary bishop to act as a sort of personal um, vicariat for them that sort of situation to one side. Generally speaking, nobody knows who their auxiliary bishop is. Nobody does. Nobody You're knows that. You're kidding me. Really? Of course not. I know. What do you think? Only, only a um, sociopath would know that. So I understand what you're saying. The, if you were to the break idea up the of an auxiliary diocese. bishop is it allows the... It doesn't allow. That's not fair because it makes it sound like that's what the bishop wants. And I don't think any diocese bishop wants this. But this is of a piece when we were talking about ecclesiastical institutional footprint and structures that are not fit for purpose, far too big, and end up sucking the bishop out of his actual ministry of being the bishop of the diocese because he's busy managing this gigantic titanic institutional ship. How many ancient how many dioceses was Rome in the ancient in the days of ancient? Five? I think you, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh yeah, I mean so in that sense I do understand what you're saying. Well um, a, let me let me just take the train of thought to its logical conclusion here, which is Instead of instead of economy of scale, let's go the other way and do full blown subsidiarity. Let, you know, instead of having you know a, a giant archdiocese of Los Angeles or archdiocese of Chicago that has to manage all the Catholic schools and all the parishes and all the everything else, what if you just said no? We're going to carve it all up, and instead of having seven auxiliaries, we're just going to have seven small dioceses where the bishop has a real intimate relationship with his priests, where the bishop has a real personal relationship with his flock in his diocese. Why not? 
if you take away the idea that, well, the, the real function of a diocese is to make sure that you have, you know, a sort of gigantic institutional structure that can support all of these apostolates, which, you know, couldn't possibly be done as standalone pop-up things by, you know, an evangelically minded collection of local laity. If you take that away, there's no, there's no argument against it. Other than stability of the thing, I mean, population shift, democracy shift, you know, demography shifts. And so, you know, you may have sort of dioceses which do not have long-standing sort of... I'm just saying, L.A. has is one archdiocese. The city of London is two archdioceses. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I, I, I Mexico don't... Mexico City's got two archbishops. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. I, I, I do not disagree with you. Uh, about that um, i am a native chicagoan i love the city i love its weird and wacky parochial history in different parts of the city there is no way that place needs eight bishops it's except you nuts. seem to think that it could conceivably be eight dioceses well i don't think it needs to be eight dioceses i think it could conceivably be two dioceses or three and i think if it were you wouldn't need a bishop one with... problem one problem with that one problem with becoming two dioceses or three I, I, there are a couple probably challenges to it one is the infrastructure thing so you need to have regional tribunals or something like that you know and other sort of regional possible, administrative but... affairs which is easily enough done in which in fact the diocese you know which the code allows for the possibility of the in fact i think there... the, I, actually i think there is already um the illinois bishops already have uh, a regional, regional tribunal. tribunal at least oh, in second okay. instance no oh, i didn't know that there's n- there's there's no more second instance. Oh, yeah, that's right. No, there still is. There still is, but not really. Not really. If you don't know what we're talking about, it doesn't matter. But uh, Pope Francis promulgated this thing in 2015 no, 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 called... No, no, can't do that. <laughs> ...called Medis Eudix something something. And Medis Eudix something something made it so that you no longer needed, in tribunal cases, marriage cases, you no longer needed something called two, you know, ratification of a first instance affirmative. And that's what used to be done in second instance, but now they don't do that. So second instance is just tear appeals. Anyway, yeah, okay. So maybe they do have a second instance interdiocesan tribunal, and you would need to do things like that. But the other thing is one loses, one could be in danger um, if dioceses were made too small. One could be in danger of being sort of um, segregated with one's um, cultural and especially economic peers rather than being in the kind of economic economically diverse diocese that I think facilitates meaning has the potential at least to facilitate meaningful Christian relationships. Now maybe that's idealized and maybe those meaningful Christian relationships aren't fulfilled. But actually, um, I'm not sure. You know, I'm not sure if there there's no value for even among presbyterates that people come from different backgrounds and oh, things no, like I, that. I think that's absolutely a value and importance and, you know, how you would how you would make smaller dioceses of different areas I think is important. But I mean, for example, New York's got the Diocese of Brooklyn right there, and it's it's huge and whatever, but it's one point, what is it? What, Brooklyn's one and a half million Catholics. The Archdiocese of New York proper is 2.8 million Catholics. Okay. I don't I don't think there's a lack of diversity in either one of those dioceses. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And both of them are smaller by some margin than, say, the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Yeah. Well, I guess um, I, I, I see your point. Uh, yeah, I see your points. And um, I, I guess my thing is this. My analysis was intended to be about like what I genuinely think might happen. And I do not think that uh, I genuinely do not think that large metropolitan seas in the United States will suddenly sort of be first. Uh, first of all, either split into smaller dioceses. No, or, I don't think that uh, either. Or sort of divested wholesale of their auxiliaries because bishops like to hang on to their auxiliaries when they can and those kinds of things. Um, I do genuinely think, though, like if I were the if I were the Metropolitan Archbishop of St. Paul in Minneapolis, I'd be looking at these small dioceses and I'd be thinking, man, I have 
something of a responsibility to help the nuncio find bishops for these places. Um, and, you know, so that means maybe they're going to come from my own archdiocese. And gosh, I have parishes that are nearly as large as some of these places. And I need good pastors too. So if my best men go off to be the bishops of these places, it's going to be a hardship here. Um, and at the same time, I'd be thinking, you know, I'm going to be sending a good man into a situation uh, with good people to be sure, but also, you know, ser very serious financial challenges, administrative challenges, et cetera, and then the challenges of evangelization. And, you know, at a certain point, I'd find myself saying, wouldn't we be able to deploy more resources in the direction of the proclamation of the gospel if we were a little bit more consolidated in terms of infrastructure? Now, you say, yeah, the ideal situation is that we'd have very, very small dioceses. Maybe it is, Ed. I'm just saying, as I think well, about... Hang on, I don't the, think a million and a half is very, very small. Okay, great. Because as I think about sort of the what, what might happen in the real world, uh, maybe Chicago w would be split, but I think it's far more likely that some of the small dioceses across the country will begin to be merged into each other, which has happened in your home country of England, um, which has happened in... Uh, certainly Italy used to have many more dioceses than it does. So it's not like there's no historical precedent for... Um, no, no, no. I, I'm not saying so. I, do, I don't think it's massive. I do... Taking you made two you said two things. The first is that you don't think it's likely that um, dioceses are going to be broken up and we're going to shift to a situation of you know much much smaller. I don't think so either. That right. that that was a thought that was a thought bubble I had in the in the trust tree, the safe space of our our own podcast. Oh, this isn't a safe space. I, th I don't I don't think this isn't a safe space. You're not safe for saying that. Yeah, I know. Um, anyway, but no, I don't I don't think that's going to happen. It's but it's an I think it's an interesting alternative ecclesiological. Um, thought process to go through rather than trending upwards, in which case the sort of, you know, logical extreme is, well, why do we need dioceses at all? Why don't we just have the USCCB run everything and we can have, you know, sort of regional Episcopal vicars for the whole country, uh, you know. Well, that's a bad idea. It is a bad idea, but I don't think that's going to happen. But what you said was that you also don't think the benches are going to be cleared in metropolitan seas and the auxiliaries used to to staff vacant dioceses in the, in the rest of the country. I, I disagree with you. I think that will happen. I absolutely think that will happen. I think that the nuncio will, you know, go to the Archbishop of Detroit in the case of Gaylord and say, look, who you got, man? Who do you recommend? Because that's right. part of what you're supposed to do as the nuncio is you're supposed to go to the Metropolitan yeah. Archbishop and you're supposed that to go to the is. Bishop of Detroit. Who, yeah. who should we put in here? And if you don't that have happens. anyone or, you know, if you go to the Archbishop of St. Paul, Minneapolis, and he ain't got anyone for New Ulm, they're going to go to the next available Archbishop in Chicago and say, well, who you got? And there doesn't seem to be any shortage of people willing to be made bishops in the Archdiocese of Chicago, and the Archbishop of Chicago doesn't appear to have any hesitation in putting them forward. And I do think that, you know, you're going to get the benches clear. Now, you say that bishops like to hold on to their auxiliaries, and that's true. But if you're a bishop who's able to get auxiliaries appointed with, you know, considerable alacrity, three at a go, um, yeah, you might just say, yeah. Easy come, easy go. I'll make three more. Little high, little low. Yeah, you very well might. Well, I guess we shall see, huh? That's how you get dynasties, man. Indeed. Dynasty is how English people say dynasty? Uh, yeah. Okay. I just want to clarify that for myself. Uh, Ed, uh, before we end, this was a... Uh, this was an interesting conversation. I enjoyed having it with you, as I always do. Uh, I did make a little game did for you? Easter. We were still in the octave of Easter, as you know. So I did make a little game uh, called, uh, well, I have the raw material for a little game available to me. And uh, from there, I will um, from there I will make a game as we go. But uh, um, it's called, uh, it's called um, Easter Around the World is what I 
have just decided right now to call it. Okay. And um, the gist of Easter around the world is that I'm going to tell you, Ed, about customs of uh, about Easter customs, and uh, it will be your job to share with us uh, where where these uh, the, the countries from which these customs are derived. Alrighty. Are you are you ready for Easter around the world? I am. Ed, let's begin with kite flying. The people of this country aim high for Easter. Kite flying is a favorite pastime during uh, the Easter holidays. The people of this country make their own kites with wooden sticks and colorful paper and intricate designs and uh, um, using often a sort of special tissue that they uh, bring into the country or manufacture in the country to make to give their kites a buzzing sound. Uh, and on Easter Sunday, people gather uh, in a prominent gathering place in this country, and they unfurl their kites and allow them to fly into the air. Ed, where is kite flying in Easter tradition? Hmm. They hmm. probably do it in shorts. Well, that's unpleasant. Um, uh, huh. Okay. So I have three initial thoughts. First of all, I know kite flying is big in the Near East. Uh, I also know it's popular in countries like Afghanistan, but uh, there certainly is no large Catholic population in Afghanistan, so it's doubtful that. I once knew a, an Italian guy who who liked kite flying and go everywhere with a kite. He was kind of a hippie. I don't know that he was necessarily emblematic of a wider culture, so probably not that. You mentioned shorts, which immediately makes me think Bermuda. Oh, ding, 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 ding. Bermuda it is. Cool. Do they wear Bermuda shorts or do they just wear shorts? I, I presume. I don't know about the shorts at all. I just... I said no, Bermuda short shorts is a real thing. I, I know that Bermuda shorts are a real thing. That's why I said shorts, to give you a hint that it was ah, Bermuda. Okay. Well, it worked. Yeah. Well, I... No. A good hint okay. well taken. Thank you. All right. Let's move on. Okay. From kites, Ed, to murder. <laughs> That's an Easter tradition? Well, I mean, yes. I suppose Good Fridays, you know. In this country... Uh, there is a, a custom, a national custom, a prominent, well-known, much-loved national custom of reading, watching, and listening to crime stories, especially murder mysteries and detective thrillers during the Easter holidays. The whole country, Ed, is practically on their edge of their seats, paranoid, looking over their shoulders, completely occupied with these murder mysteries. Ed, in what country are murder mysteries... An Easter custom. Well, presumably this is going to be a Scandi country because those people are weird. And uh, this sounds like the sort of thing they would do. So I'm going to say... Uh, I'd call it a coin toss between Denmark and Norway. Norway. Ding, 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 ding. Well done. You nailed it. Now, in Norway, during... Paskrimen... Uh, the Norwegian tradition of reading, watching, and listening to crime stories. Even uh, food companies, like milk companies, will put, you know, like milk producers will put little crime stories on the side of the milk, and cereal boxes will have little crime stories on the backs. Pasca creamen, Easter crime, is a serious, serious custom in, in Norway. It's hard to take them seriously when they have accents that go Pasca creamen. Pasca creamen. Now, Ed, I Did you, you commit a murder? <laughs> Was it grisly? I gave you a hint. I gave you a hint, and I wondered if you picked up on that hint. Was you... there anything that. You did you. say the word occupied. I did. Which is what swung me. I got to Scandi all on my own, but <laughs> occupied is what swung me from Denmark to Norway. Good for you. Occupied is a show that 
about Norway that you and I have both enjoyed. I think I, I think I turned you on to it. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> Watch out for flying shards of pottery. What? In Watch out for flying shards of pottery. Oh, God. In this country, on Easter Saturday, when at 11 a.m. sharp, the residents of one town take to their balconies to throw clay pots to the pavement below. A tradition which dates back to the 16th century, when people would throw their useless and old belongings out the window to get ready ready for um, for Easter. Well, this is crazy, so I'm just going to say it's probably Spain. Oh, you are close. It is crazy, but it's Greek crazy. Ah. Yeah, it's Greek crazy. I mean, so you were... You were uh, you were right that those it was... wacky Orthodox. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. So they haven't done it yet, right? Because Orthodox Easter is May second. Yeah. So they'll do this on May the first. They'll yeah, and probably set fire to cheese or something like that. They will know. probably 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 set fire to cheese. Well, Ed, what are you two for? Two for two three. Two for three. I can two live for with three? That. Okay. All right. I think you're going to get this one. In this small village, in an in an annual tradition uh, on Easter itself. Uh, Villagers get together to create with thousands of eggs, omelets big enough to feed hundreds. An annual Easter custom is to use as many as 4,000 eggs to create an Easter treat of an omelet. They make a single omelet out of 4,000 eggs? Oh, you know what? In one village in this region, the giant omelet is annually made with 50. 15,000 eggs and a dozen cooks. How do you when do it's complete, that? How do you, when what, in what do a you make flat it? Top, a huge flat top, I suppose. When it's done, they cut it into thousands of portions and everyone can line up and get one. I mean, I have very particular ideas about how one makes an omelet. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I feel like this would be physically impossible because you have to be able to, I mean, you don't want to, you want to beat the eggs before they go in the pan. And, and then you want to, you don't want to, overwork the eggs in the pan you basically want to allow oh and i don't think the omelet is good man can we just have a moment and talk about proper omelet technique i think this is important and it's probably something most people get wrong and i just want to you know i think we can we crack some eggs of knowledge here jd look you brought us here and i think if we're going to be here we might as well perform the public services there is a right way if i may and there are many many wrong ways of making an omelet there's no wrong way to eat oh no that's eateresis there may be a wrong way to eat an omelet what do i know no there's no wrong way to eat an omelet i'm not but you would agree that there's no wrong way to eat a reese's no, there's no wrong way to do that. Okay, great. No, Go ahead. Of course not. Um, no, but I mean... It, the Pillar Podcast, everyone, brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, where there's no wrong way to eat Reese's. I swear to God, if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups sponsored this podcast, I would be so happy. That, <laughs> that would, would be, be sweet. Amazing. Oh, okay, go ahead. Only. Anyway, so no, I mean, you really, I mean, the ideal size omelet here is three eggs. You would, you know, more than that. And here's what you want to do. First of all, butter in the pan, a small amount, not, you don't want to do too much but enough that you're coating the whole pan and there's butter in there it shouldn't just be a sort of sheen it should be you know don't add milk don't roll your eyes at me this is important i'm not, I'm not rolling my eyes at you although you've rolled your eyes at me several times during this show yeah, but that's i'm just my sitting stick. here thinking i'm just sitting here thinking about something else fine um and what you want to do this is the trick is you put a a single clove of garlic on the prongs of a fork and you use that to beat the eggs before weirdly you've family. told me about this before yeah and you use that to beat the eggs in the bowl then you add them to the pan and then you wait till basically the bottom of the omelet is i mean you want to have this on a very low heat you don't want it to cook too fast and then as the omelet starts to cook you can drag um your fork across the the pan twice 
That's it. No more than that. It should be runny on top and cooked on the bottom, but not overcooked. It shouldn't be tough. This, you know, this should be fall apart lovely. And putting in, you will have, a, and you can do a little salt. That's fine. Pepper if you want. Even a little hot sauce if it takes your fancy. But the important thing is don't overwork it. Don't add anything to it. Eggs and butter. If you want to add extra flavor, I'm telling you, clove of garlic on the prongs before you got to do it. Now, the answer to your question, where are they doing this bizarre thing where they're making a 15,000 egg omelet? I I have no idea. Um, uh, Portugal? They can sing. They can dance. After, oh my After God, all that, this is France. This is, okay, this where is, an omelet here is never second best. That's a shame because I expect better of the French, to be honest with you, when it comes to cooking. Although well, this I is often, the thing I that, always expect better of the French, and they never deliver. That's this the, is that's a thing the that the French do in villages outside of Toulouse. So, I guess, oh. Well, moving on, Ed. Okay, in this country, this is an interesting one. In this country, in the country's executive mansion, annually on Easter, children are invited to gather and, this is very odd, roll Easter eggs along the lawn um, while the country's executive uh, looks on and then gives a short sort of Easter egg exhortation. I feel like this is something they probably do in the United States. They do. Isn't that weird? They do indeed. Do they, the they, annual they, Easter egg roll on the South Lawn of the White House. Oh my you, God. Surely you know about that. No, I totally didn't. I just, I could picture any one of our clownish presidents, you know, supervising such a ridiculous thing. And I just thought, yeah, this sounds like some sort of stupid White House photo op. Oh, I thought you were going to tell me that this was like, you know, they did this in Lithuania or something. Oh. Uh, they might, but they also do it right here in River City. Oh, God help us. Children in this country dress up like witches and go begging for chocolate eggs in the streets with painted faces and scarves around their head carrying bunches of willow twigs decorated with feathers. Well, these children should be burned. Well, I mean... Um, okay, uh, Poland? No, sorry. Okay, where? Uh, not close. Well, Finland, Ed. Finland is the answer. Really? Do you mm-hmm. know, Finland is a funny thing. Um, there's no actual... Like, the, the idea of a... a, a Finland as a, as a nation-state, as a country, as a geography has absolutely no basis in history. It's very, very interesting. The Finnish are not Scandinavians. Right. The Finnish are not Scandinavians. It's a Nordic country, but it's not a Scandinavian country. And Finnish is not linguistically related to no. uh, Danish or uh, Swedish or, uh, or or Norse, which are all, I think, fairly... Or Norwegian, I suppose, which are all fairly common. Uh, right. There are migrant people that came across the steppes and through Russia and ended up in this sort of, you know bit of the world that no one in their right mind would want to live in because it's so freaking cold there are other finnic languages though right i mean there yeah, are but they're nowhere other... near finland yeah that's right but I'm, I'm trying to think i was just trying to think of what they are some of the other finnic languages i think are balkan languages i think like oh i would have <sighs> i would have sat out in the stands down in um like you know Turkic almost, and I think Estonian has some correlation to Finnish, which I guess makes sense. Well, that makes sense. They're they're more sort of sense. Adjacent, yeah, right. but yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But this is why, like, if you um, everyone in Finland speaks absolutely perfect English, and they mm-hmm. don't like you learning Finnish. Finnish. Like, if yeah. you go to you know you know the if you go to Paris, the the French will sort of simultaneously expect you to speak French, yeah, uh, and look down on you if you try and speak French, yeah. Which is why you should never ever speak French in france you should just mm-hmm. speak english i don't go to france i don't like france I, d- I don't like france ed i don't and it's not like an american like oh the frogs or whatever i just don't find paris to be a city that i no, like paris very much and it's the whole of my friends yeah i, right. lo- and I love okay, going to it's france not like i'm being like a minute no i just I, don't like france no i like france i don't like paris i hate paris okay well maybe i should go to another place but i've already sort of made this judgment consider Lyon, great city excellent food okay i was Fantastic. saying to kate the other day 
you know, and tell me, I don't know, it's, I suppose we're partners, so this is as much your decision as it is Kate's, but I was saying to Kate the other day that the cool thing about our work, Ed, is that in a certain way there is a sort of liberty. I said to Kate, like, we could, like, rent out our house for a year and then go and, you know, uh, base ourselves. I was actually talking about the Costa del Sol, but, you know, go and base ourselves in Spain or France or something like that for a year or a- anywhere, really. I mean, we kind of have a cool, oh, yeah. cool gig in that no, way. No, I've had this thought. I, um, I Yeah, I we could, and we absolutely should. If if the mood takes you, I don't go to the Costa del Sol. That is Lagerlaut Central. Um, you will <laughs> right. not enjoy that. Um, if you want to go to Spain, I we can. I know I know some places in Spain. I just was thinking that it would be a cheap place to get a to get a, a house. Okay, there there will, there are other places that will be better, and you will not be exposed to you know the things to which sort of Newcastle at closing time, which is what you. I, get I like Newcastle. Okay. Uh, in this country, Ed, um, wh- what are we on? Did, are you, am I waiting on you or are you waiting on me here? I don't know. I feel like there was a final point I wanted to make about Finland. But anyway, oh, it doesn't matter. Right. Carry on. Where in are we? In this country, now i got to find my thing here. Oh, this country, Ed, um, replaced the Easter bunny with uh, another animal in 1991. Um because in this country, uh, rabbits are widely considered to be pests, which destroy crops and land. And so uh, they replace the Easter bunny with another animal, and uh, they celebrate it slightly differently. I don't know. Uh, it hadn't occurred to me that the Easter bunny had been around long enough that you could replace it. Uh, uh, Mexico? No. Uh, in fact, the answer is Australia, where the Easter bunny has been replaced with the Easter bilby. A bilby, Ed, as you probably know, is a rabbit-eared bandicoot, which tends to crash into things. But anyhow... I do uh, not... Hang on. Spell that for me because I want to see a picture of this thing. The Easter bilby? B-I-L-B-Y. That's going to be the picture. I, I think it would be good if you'd make an Easter bilby the sort of cover photo for the show this week, if you would. Be so kind. This is... This is... Wow. Um, good, wow. The Easter bilby. It's a crash-eared bandicoot. It is. Wait, it's a rabbit-eared bandicoot that crashes. This is... Thank you, JD. You've broadened my horizon. I had never Indeed. heard of a bilby before. I didn't know what the, the hell Easter bilby, bilby was. The rabbit-eared right. bandicoot. Okay, last one. Here we go. Okay. While the rest of the world hunts for Easter eggs, uh, people in this village grab their guns for the great annual Easter bunny hunt. This country, as does Australia, regards... Bunnies as invasive pests who destroy crops and dig holes that cause horses to break their legs and other such things. And so um, more than 500 hunters vie for a trophy and prize money of a substantial amount. I don't want to say the amount because then I'd have to say the denomination. Um, But vie for prize money of a substantial amount and a trophy. uh, And collectively between them uh, hunt more than 10,000 rabbits each year. During the Easter weekend, Great Easter Bunny Hunt. That's really cool. Uh, okay, is this Poland? No, it's not. It's not. You can see why I thought that. Though. I can. I can. Uh, okay, no, but this is a really cool tradition. Where is it? It is. If you, Ed, want to take part in the Great Easter Bunny Hunt, uh, get your passport, get a plane ticket, and head over to Otago, New Zealand. For the ah. great annual Easter bunny hunt, where you can earn, uh, by catching the most rabbits, 
3,500 New Zealand dollars, which is probably easily 50 American dollars uh, for the most number of rabbits bagged on Easter. Wow. Okay. Well, and that has been Ed Easter Round the World. That was that was remarkable. Thank you. Indeed. So, dear friends, take a bite of your Easter bilby. Be assured of our prayers. We'll be back next week. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Joint. I'm your host, JD Easter Bilby Flynn, and I'm joined by my co-host, Ed, the Easter Bunny Hunter Condon. We'll be back next week. Thank you.